Hello, and welcome to episode 121 of Ricochet's Law Talk podcast, brought to you by Donors Trust. We are coming to you, as always, from the faculty lounge of the Ricochet University School of Law, also offering cotillion classes. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter and world-renowned lawn care entrepreneur, and I am joined, as always, by the peaches and herb of the conservative legal movement. There is no demographic overlap between our listeners in that reference. They are Richard Epstein, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, senior lecturer at the University of Chicago, and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and John Yu, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Fellas, how are we doing? How does the springtime find you? I know John is coming to us from Dallas this evening. Richard is coming to us from his laundry room. In Chicago. <laughs> it's the only place where the connection is sufficiently sound and solid. And I also am very happy to have my three grandchildren here. Um, and so what happens is I have to escape refuge from them. But I did take my two grandsons to the baseball game. The five-year-old lasted five innings, one for each year of his life. Uh, and the nine-year-old would have lasted for the whole game. But the Cubs were so terrible that uh, we left after eight innings. They were behind. If they won, it would be a minor miracle, and I will be duly apologetic. At the risk of probing into too much biographical detail, and feel free to shoot me down here at any point if you want to. How old are your grandchildren, Richard? Nine and, the two sons are nine and five, and my granddaughter is 12. She showed only total disdain for the baseball game. How do you, Richard Epstein, who our audience knows and loves, the contours of your personality well known to them at this point, how do you interact with children of that age? I try to act this like This is hard for me to picture. Well, I, well, why is it not? I've had three children of my own. Um, what I do is you try to do age-appropriate activities. Um, so what happens with my five-year-old, he's a master Lego builder. Uh, he's so much faster at that stuff than I am that I simply watch in awe. Uh, with my nine-year-old, we tend to play chess and do some math problems. And with my 12-year-old, I attempt to sing since she's quite talented at theater. But she always hushes me up on the grounds that I will ruin whatever talent she has by trying to join in with her. So it's a perfectly normal relationship. We don't talk very much about Lochner in New York or the Trump administration because those subjects only create agitation and unease within the Epstein family household. And John, you live in the Bay Area, so I assume you've never had the opportunity to interact with a child. <laughs> well, there are lots of students. I thought Richard was going to say that he just treats them like students. God help us. <laughs> <laughs> I, bet, I expect your grandchildren already know all about Roman riparian law. Well, no. As a matter of fact, they don't. But we You've did spared do... them. You've spared no, them. I mean, we actually had a very good discussion in Roman law this past week on Roman riparian law. And then we related it to the various laws having to do with overflights on airplanes. Not, we... not with your grandchildren, to be clear. No, we did not. But it was actually an extremely good discussion <laughs> in my class. And I was quite pleased about the way in which it went. And we ended up with Stop the Beach Renourishment with Justice Scalia, who did not know the difference between an act of God and an act of human being because he thought of Revulsion could be done by people, which is a hundred percent wrong. So unforgivable. It is, particularly since it got everything messed up in the case. This is 2010. And so you can make Roman law mistakes even today. So the subject has got immense salience. I regard it as the most relevant course in the curriculum. I, I, I regret I said it. I regret I said it. You, yeah, you, you, you really My grandchildren don't hear this tirade, but you will. <laughs> I released the crack and it was my mistake. All right, fellas. So the last time that we talked, last time we got together for a show, we had just gotten Bill Barr's summary document on the Mueller report, but we hadn't seen the document itself yet. And if you recall, back then, Nancy Pelosi was saying, well, we can't take the attorney general at his word. We need to see the document. He could just be working in service of the president. And what do you know? It turns out that when congressional Democrats actually saw it, they thought that he was wrong and there was a powerful case for obstruction of justice. Richard, is that your takeaway from the Mueller report? 
No, I thought it was a bad report, and I don't think it led to that particular result at all. I mean, what Barr did was have two major conclusions, both of which he quoted. The first was there was no evidence of collusion. And secondly, on the question of obstruction, the report took the very studied position uh, that there was insufficient evidence to prosecute, but there was not sufficient evidence uh, to exonerate. That's exactly what they did. Uh, The report was long. It was tedious. The legal analysis, I thought, was quite poor. And then they go into a fairly long discussion of all the various incidents. Uh, the only thing I think that was truly new, which was obtained from Trump himself, uh, was McGahn's statement that I'm not going to fire Mueller, even though you have ordered me to do so, getting the president to back down. And what we learned from that is what we've always known is that Donald Trump's worst enemy when Donald Trump is faced with a serious problem is Donald Trump. And uh, does this count as obstruction when you turn the documents over and when the order is never executed and when, in fact, the president probably does have the power and even some reasons to fire more? I don't think it does that. But that's obviously the point at which is going to be the greatest contention. Uh, but I believe that Ms. Pelosi will stop this thing from becoming a uh, an impeachment hearing because I don't think she wants to have this thing appear really carping and nasty with the Republicans completely away from it. The basic rule of thumb on impeachment is you never succeed except in the circumstances you had with Richard Nixon where his own party turns against him. And whatever the Republicans may think of Donald Trump and his various antics, they don't think that he committed any kind of an impeachable offense. It is kind of remarkable to see Nancy Pelosi acting as the the adult in the room in the Democratic <laughs> caucus right now. John, how, how close does your reading of the report align with Richard's? Well, first, I think that Barr actually did a pretty good job summarizing the report. I, you know, I think the report on the facts of the collusion investigation completely <laughs> exonerated him. I mean, exoneration is the wrong word. I mean, it's even... I mean, it's, it's, as far as you could go, the report says it's not that there's insufficient evidence to prove a conspiracy to violate federal law. It says there is no evidence. I mean, you could not be cleared any better. And you might remember on our show, I think we were one of the probably very few conservatives who are not going around attacking Mueller all the time. The three of us thought, you know, that Trump should cooperate with Mueller and that Mueller could well clear him. And if he cleared him, that would be the gold standard of all clearings. So I, I think Trump made a mistake by fighting with Mueller all this time, and that's what produces volume two. Now, I think, Richard, I don't know if we fully agree, but I do think that pretty much the president, based on the actions described in the report, cannot commit obstruction in the sense that he can't commit obstruction by using his constitutional powers that are uniquely presidential, like pardoning people, like firing an FBI director, like making decisions about prosecutorial resources. I don't think those can amount to obstruction. I think the only, and I, and I think it's an interesting argument. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, Barr clearly thinks this. I'm not convinced, but Barr thinks that a president can commit obstruction, however, if it's things like tampering with witnesses, destroying evidence, things like that. There are examples of that discussed in the report, but Trump didn't actually do any of it. He, he may have wanted to tamper with witnesses and get people to make up misleading emails, but on those cases, his aides. You know, his aides actually did him a great service by not listening to him and carrying out what, what they thought were his orders. On the stuff where uh, Trump actually did things, firing Comey, that's, those are cases where the president can fire. You know, that's, that's where Trump's using a presidential constitutional power. He can do what he wants regardless of his motive, it seems to me. But I do think that – I think uh, the other point I, – I'm not sure I agree with Richard on the politics of it, but I do think that – Volume two of the report about obstruction was really just a handoff to Congress. Mueller says right away in the beginning, you know, we can't indict a sitting president and I can't actually charge him for obstruction. Um, and then he says, I think, but there are other constitutional processes, you know, such as and then footnotes, such as impeachment, uh, you know, to respond to presidential abuse. And so I think most of volume two is just handing off what Mueller found to any kind of possible oversight or even impeachment inquiry. I have. Just quickly, Richard, what do you make of that that point that John just made? Should Bob Mueller have showed more leg here? By that, I mean, was it too cute 
to not reach a conclusion on the obstruction of justice issue, or is that sort of a ju- judicious approach to the matter? No, he's he's not an elected being, special counsel. I don't believe he's being judicious. I think he's being tactical. But let me sort of say why. At the beginning of the report, he gives three circumstances that complicate the analysis. One is the unique presidential position of power with respect to the ability to hire and fire. Secondly, you now know that it's perfectly clear under these circumstances that uh, Trump did not committing any underlying offensive collusion that would lead him to want to publish this. And that third, virtually all of these activities were done in public, sometimes overtly in the entire public and otherwise within plain view of everybody within his office. And what happens is he doesn't take those things into account. If you did take those things into account, every one of them cuts in favor of the president and it would make the cake much sweeter and would certainly lead to exoneration. And I think, in effect, what Mueller should have said is I'm here as a prosecutor and what I do is I find that there is insufficient evidence to charge the president, full stop. Uh, Congress can take up anything it wants. Uh, but when he started to say there's no exoneration, yes, he is handing it off to Congress. But I regard this as somewhat unseemly because he's handing it off to Congress without looking at the three levers that are most powerful with respect to Trump. I want to make one other point where, I, in fact, John is, I think, right. The president can surely fire um, various people at will, uh, given that he is a unitary executive and that they're chief officials. But even if you wanted to say whether there's justification in these particular cases, there's all sorts of justifications for firing Comey. Um, Many of them were laid out by Rod Rosenstein. And, of course, the decision on the part of Comey to tell the president, yes, I know you're not under investigation. This is before Mueller began an investigation. But I'm not going to say that to the public at large. I regard that as a terrible act of disloyalty. If a man knows that somebody is not under a cloud, why can't he not have the decency to say that publicly? I would have fired the particular fellow. And of course, I think Comey also did another dreadful thing when instead of giving his own uh, testimony direct to the public or to Mueller, he routed it through some Columbia law professor. So it appeared that it came from somebody else and therefore essentially avoided the scheme or, or the appearance of being kind of vengeance by Mr. Comey when it turned out later on he acknowledged that he had done it after the investigation began. So I think there are lots of reasons to fire him. I also did not think that Mueller should have taken the assignment uh, because he's too close to Comey and too close to Rosenstein, too close to the department, and they should have gotten somebody else. So I think, in fact, Trump could have fired him for conflicts of interest from the beginning. And I do disagree. I agree that he should never fire Comey. I thought it was political suicide and continue to believe that. But I have nothing particularly fond or pleasant or favorable to say about Mr. Mueller. I don't think he should have been in this thing at all. The report is, I think, pretty darn weak on the uh, stuff having to deal with obstruction and that I think the whole matter should be put to rest. He was quite conscious, I think, that he wanted to keep the fire stirring. He may be a Republican, but he's an anti-Trump Republican. That's no big surprise. I'm an anti-Trump Republican on many things. And I'll just again give the same phrase I always give, with Trump, it's always a la carte. On one issue, he could get an A, and on the next one, he could get an F, and you have to be extremely careful to distinguish one thing from another and not have either critical praise on the one hand or some really relentless um, condemnation on, on the other. John, you had a piece in the Washington Post right after the report came out that said that at this point, it's impeachment or bust for the Democrats, and that that's how it should be. If you want to go after the president, really go after the president. Subsequent to that, yesterday, in fact, there was another piece in the Washington Post by Hillary Clinton that said <laughs> – We're on the same paper. <laughs> that said, actually, it's not impeachment or bust. There's a middle ground where you use the machinery of congressional committees to basically investigate the daylights out of the Trump administration and look under every available rock. What do you make of that strategy? Well, first, you don't need impeachment to do that, right? You could just do – regular oversight and just have hearings about whether you think the Trump administration is doing a good job or not in executing the law and administering the government, you wouldn't need the Mueller report to do any of that. And that actually, that, that's what goes to the point I was trying to make in the Post article, was that actually the independent counsel or special counsel has been a 40-year experiment that we should get rid of. The real institution that's supposed to do all this is Congress. The Congress is the one who's supposed to check presidential abuse of power. And Congress is the one supposed to be doing the investigations and uh, questioning witnesses, gathering evidence that the Mueller report, uh, that Mueller did and expressed in the Mueller report. So, you know, at one level, I think Clinton, Hillary Clinton's right. Congress 
should be looking under the stones and kicking the tires. They should be doing that all the time. Uh, but second, I think she's wrong in that it's triggered by the Mueller report or that, uh, you know, that they needed to wait for the Mueller report to do that. They should be doing it all this time. And they can always decide whether to transform any of these investigations into a general impeachment investigation. And I think Richard's point was that he just doesn't think politically there's any uh, will to do that. I wonder, one point I wanted to make about the politics of it, though, is that this is an area where the uh, leadership of the Democratic Party in the House seems to be at odds with the presidential wing of the party. Uh, you know, you yeah. have people like Elizabeth Warren calling for impeachment to start, Kamala Harris. I think even though these people are in Congress, and so they could conceivably do something about it, but I, I could see a lot of the Democratic primary candidates calling for impeachment. And then where does that put Pelosi and the House leadership? Well, it puts her exactly where she is. She understands that she could lose the presidency and the Congress if she tries to push very, very hard. It will look vindictive. The other thing, which is supremely ironic, is that Mrs. Clinton tries to come forward as the person in the white hat. Uh, the person who's escaped more serious investigation and more serious of offenses is her. I mean, here we do know that there is a direct link between the Democratic National Committee, uh, the Steele dossier, and the various FISA warrants, uh, which had to do with what was going on during the presidential election. We know, to use a not-too-delicate term, that the FBI was spying on various kinds of Trump operatives, that they never cooperated with him in the way in which they they cooperated with everybody else. Um, if you want to run nonstop investigations in the House with respect to the president, it's going to encourage the folks in the Senate to run nonstop investigations of Mrs. Clinton and everything that went on starting at around late 2014 and going through the end of the particular campaign. I am not particularly in favor of going after her. I, I think political retribution is a big mistake, uh, but certainly people in the FBI who've been sacked may well end up being subject to criminal sanctions, and I think Barr is going to do this. I'd also want to say in defense of Barr, he wrote a 19-page memo, which caused virtually nothing uh, before he became Attorney General, which is a much more thoughtful and serious document than the tedious report that Mr. Mueller put together on the obstruction issue. So it's kind of ironic that those guys are attacking Barr when Barr is in fact a superior a lawyer to the whole bunch of them. John, a, a lot has been made of a passage in the Mueller report, which I think, Richard, one of you mentioned this earlier, this passage where President Trump apparently ordered the firing of Robert Mueller, but Don McGahn, who was the White House counsel at the time, refused to do it, and the president stood down. And this is of a piece with a lot of stories that we hear, uh, maybe true, maybe untrue, about the White House staff trying to corral the president's worst instincts and, and sometimes just defying orders. Um, Yuval Levin had a piece at the corner at National Review Online a few days ago where he cautioned, based on this anecdote, uh, that we, sh we shouldn't be too comforted by this because it, while it may be a short-term fix that you're keeping the president from blowing stuff up, you're also by doing that essentially entrusting the executive branch to people that no one elected – and you're also a lot less likely to have that kind of intercession in an emergency situation where things are happening in a matter of, of minutes instead of days. So Yuval is basically cautioning that the presidency is in very unsteady and, and potentially dangerous hands. So two points to this. First of all, do you agree with that diagnosis? And second of all, do the people who are concerned about it just have to reconcile themselves to the fact that there's not really anything they can do about it? It's a good question. I mean, it's a good point because if you read the volume two, uh, right, volume one's about the campaign, and Trump doesn't really appear in it that much. It's mostly about the the lesser figures, uh, you know, who will I'm sure fade quickly from memory. But we will look back and say, once upon a time, we cared about the fates of people, these like <laughs> grifters like Carter Page. Yeah, George, George Papadopoulos forever. <laughs> nobodies. And so, but volume two is mostly about Trump. And he doesn't, as you say, he doesn't come away looking well. He looks uh, you know, uh, emotional, uh, judgmental, uh, quick to anger, um, impulsive. <laughs> I mean, you go on and on. Uh, and so yeah, I, I don't uh, disagree with the portrait. Whether that means the presidency itself is in trouble is another thing. So, you know, you could say all the same things that we've just said about Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> Lyndon did, did a lot and acted right. in a lot of the same ways as Trump. Uh, the question is, can the institution 
handle it. And the, so the, the good part of volume two is that the institution of the presidency, the people who uh, work there and the systems and the rules uh, did prevent Trump from crossing the line. He wasn't he didn't fire Mueller. Although it's interesting, I, I think he could have fired Mueller if the grounds were, uh, you know, honestly, that he thought Mueller had a conflict of interest, but that they replaced him with another prosecutor. Look, that, I agree with that, but I don't that think that's totally that, legitimate. I don't think Trump and Johnson are the same person. Uh, Lyndon Johnson. They're just they, equally impulsive and wild. I, I don't think Johnson. I think Johnson was completely calculating. Um, and whenever he decided to do something, he put people in an impossible position. But he was a shrewd tactician, and he always planned for the long haul. He may have been unscrupulous in certain ways, and he did have this wonderful public persona on the one hand and this private attack on the other. Uh, but I think, in effect, that Trump just gets out of control, and it's not only in private. When you watch the tweet machine going, um, uh, it's very, very clear that sometimes he loses all control of what's going on. And I think everybody understands that his own worst enemy. Could you imagine having him as a client if you were a lawyer? Uh, we can imagine it, but so many people have basically left the office because they basically could not control him. And my view about it is after two years of service for Donald Trump, everybody needs to take combat leave in order to make sure that they could control their own mental distress. He's got an immense amount of energy and he has no self-discipline. He's a very strange kind of guy. Um, I would be quite happy to see him leave the White House because I do think that 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 kind of impulsive behavior is extraordinarily dangerous. But remember, the Mueller report is not something about conduct and erratic behavior. It's about the question of whether there was obstruction of justice or collusion. And those things were not demonstrated by showing that the president sometimes acts in an erratic and unstable fashion. And not only that, there's no news about this. I think people have known that from not only from the time he became president, but from the time he began his campaign. For many people, that's his source of uh, right of um, uh, of real attraction is that he's willing to stick his thumb at the establishment. Johnson was not that kind of a guy. He was a absolutely commons, you know, consummate politician. He could embarrass people, but it was never done through impulse. It was always done through calculation. Okay, moving to the fallout, you, you can clearly see emerging at this point a strategy amongst Democrats that basically looks like the one Hillary Clinton articulated. They're trying to get people up on the Hill testifying, trying to go to round eight of this or whatever it is. And the Trump administration is saying they're going to resist this. They're just going to ignore the subpoenas. John, how much leeway do they have to basically tell Congress to just go pound sand? Oh, I think this is a great constitutional confrontation, and it's not clear who's going to win. I think in the past uh, what's happened is – uh, presidents have basically delayed and delayed and delayed, and then eventually they do turn over much of what Congress wants. But that's mostly for the politics of it. The constitutional law of it is actually quite unclear. The Supreme Court has really never passed directly on whether a congressional subpoena of the president who claims executive privilege, uh, you know, who wins in that context. Uh, you know, there's two competing uh, interests. Right? Congress is going to claim we have an oversight authority. We need to see. If programs are working, if the money's well spent, we don't need to pass new statutes. And the Supreme Court has said that's a valid interest. And then on the other hand, the Supreme Court in the Watergate tapes case said that the president has an executive privilege to keep confidential discussions, communications he has with his top aides, especially those involving law enforcement and military and diplomatic matters. So you would think if anything sits squarely in executive privilege, it would be the president's personal one-on-one -on -one discussions with the White House counsel. Okay, I the agree. Court and hold on, no, wait, wait. the court did say though that that could give way in the face of a criminal investigation. That's what the Watergate tapes case was. A criminal investigation slash the right of people at trial to produce evidence. Look, the I, I, reason why this is an open question is Congress hasn't, you know, the, whether Congress's claim is good enough. It's not clear whether that overcomes executive privilege, and I would think that it doesn't. But I can't say the Supreme Court's ever decided that. Well, I certainly agree that it has not decided that, but I would put it in the following fashion. Um, oversight function allows you to get information from multiple sources. And so generally speaking, if you want to have oversight, I think what you do is you look to all those other sources first and see if you come up with something. So here I think that I would distinguish between two cases, which I have somewhat different responses to. The first is on the obstruction stuff. Everybody has run investigation after investigation after investigation. All the basic facts are known. The only question is, 
is whether they sum up to obstruction, and I think the answer is no. The tax returns are a different kind of a question because there is no alternative sources, best I can tell, about how you get them. And Mr. Munchen said, we're not turning them over to you because you want it for a political vendetta. And I think, in effect, that probably the president will win on this one, will be close, because what happens is you're not trying to get this information to see how it is you reform the tax laws. If that's what you were doing, you would want to get uh, information from lots of other people. It's also pretty clear that if the information is being turned over to the committee, it's going to be made public in all sorts of different ways, whether it's by leak or by conscious publication. And that certainly goes beyond the usual stuff about oversight. There's a very strong tradition with respect to taxes that these things are not to be made public without the consent of a party. And I think that that will hold. So my guess is that Trump will probably win. It's also very clear uh, that this thing will probably go right up to the Supreme Court in the event that Trump loses in the early rounds, and it could well be several years. I doubt it would take that long before it was resolved one way or another. Uh, But I am inclined to think that the executive privilege stuff in both of these cases would be appropriate. I think it's a stronger claim with respect to obstruction than it is with respect to the taxes. Uh, But um, it's not really very, very well known. A lot of this may depend upon the way in which the rhetorical game plays out in the interim. And if the Democrats make it perfectly clear that this is just a political witch hunt in an effort to beat the president in the next election, I I think that actually hurts their case. But just like the conversation we were having last time about the Electoral College on the matter of the tax returns, it turns out that there is a clever liberal workaround. There is now legislation up for consideration in 18 different states that would require presidential and vice presidential candidates to release their tax returns as a condition of being on the ballot. If one or more of those – well, this was my question. If one or more of those passes, how likely do you think it is to, to pass constitutional Well, you think muster? it's unconstitutional? Why? Why? Because I think what happens is the federal government is the one that has the control over the terms and conditions under which you run an election. Uh, you start doing this. No, it's by default. By default. No, I, I, it cannot be that. Federal government's now, now what happens is the state law says, we're not going to let you run for president unless you agree to give 10% of your wealth to charity. I mean, once you start going down this particular rules and uh, no, the Constitution says the states have the right to set the the rules, manner the elections, but Congress can always override them. If Congress doesn't override it, then states. But this is not a time, place, or manner rule. This is basically an independent, substantive condition that you're putting on there, and uh, you cannot, I think, simply say any one of these things because you could keep adding things to the particular list. I mean, you could say you've got to control your. Let's put it this way: Mr. Barack Obama cannot go on the presidential ballot unless he discloses his college transcript. Is that constitutional? Well, that was a great idea. Why didn't we think of that? (laughs) Look, this this effort to try to clutter these things up with collateral stuff. uh, I'll give you another illustration. Suppose what you do is you want to put somebody up for the FBI and say, well, we're going to confirm you on condition that you never do X, Y, or Z. Um, you can't run an administration if you have those kinds of stuff. I agree. I think all of these things are all or nothing. And I regard all of this stuff as completely inappropriate, just as I regard the workaround on the electoral college as completely inappropriate. Uh, what you can do is each party gets to appoint its electors. I don't think the legislature has any role to tell those electors how they're supposed to vote. It sounds like justice you might let this ride. Yeah, I, I basically – so there's actually a case like this, right? It's called – it's a term limits case. Yeah, and so this was the exact same lineup and argument and – uh, you know, this is one of those rare instances where I find Richard Epstein agreeing with John Paul Stevens. Ouch. So essentially, states tried this. They tried to say, uh, to get term limits, they said, we are not going to allow anyone on the ballot who has held office in the Congress for X number of years or in the Senate for X number of years. And so, you know, the four justices who thought that was okay said that's part of the state's control of the ballot. They can decide who's allowed to appear or not. And, they, you know, they can always write them in. And so on. And the majority, the five justices in the majority said, no, this is uh, somehow it's a it goes beyond the demand because it's an effort to affect who's eligible to be a federal officer. I thought that decision was wrong. I, I think that states do have this kind of control. And it's but I think Congress can always fix it. 
Congress can say in a law that, no, you're not allowed to impose any kind of conditions on who's a, a candidate to appear on the ballot. But Congress chooses not to, then why can't states do it? That just coheres with the federal system that the Constitution advances. Because you're not dealing here with the mechanics of an election, and if one state can do it, you can imagine we have 27 different states putting 30 conditions on in each of them. And, you know, if Congress doesn't do this, it will completely distort the nature of the particular process. I think it's very instructive, A, that the term limits case came out the way which I think was correct, and B, that in the 200-odd years that we've actually tried to run elections, nobody has ever tried to pull a stunt like this. And I think, in effect, that we have to basically keep the entire system irrelevant relatively clean, or we will find condition after condition. John, you will recall that we had a big argument, I'm happy to say, as to whether or not they would strike down the condition that if you wanted to keep your current Medicare stuff, you had to take the new people on. Do you remember chortling at me when I said that that was unconstitutional? And of course, it turned out I won. So I'm sure I did chortle if I thought something. We can we can have an intern check the tapes for chortling. Well, yeah, well, I, mean, I, I will report that John chortled along with everybody else. I I didn't particularly like the opinion that the chief justice wrote, though I thought he got the right conclusion. Uh, but I think what he's really trying to say there is the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions is going to come in to the extent that you see any state or any particular official trying unilaterally to undo the particular processes for elections or for common or for, or for state for state contributions to various kinds of programs or Senate confirmations or the use of diversity jurisdiction because it's just too crazy. These are all structural elements that are built into the Constitution and if unilaterally a single state can do something which completely upends it, nobody wants to put it to the tender mercies of Congress, which I don't trust at all on anything, to actually upend that. Uh, so if it turns out that you you have a Democrat House and a Republican Senate. You're never going to get the override through. And I don't believe that the question of how these elections should be covered will depend upon whether or not we have a unified or a divided Congress. All right, fellas, we've got to pause here for a moment for a word from our friends at Donors Trust. You know, a lot of us just finished up our taxes and realized that the new tax law reduced many of the de- deductions that we used to take. The hyperbaric chamber from which I do the show, for example, is apparently no longer considered office space. But you can still take advantage of one deduction that Congress didn't touch, the charitable deduction. Do your charitable giving the smart way with a donor-advised fund from Donors Trust. Donors Trust will help you maximize your charitable tax benefits while offering a simpler way to give. A donor-advised fund acts as your personal charitable savings account. Donors Trust is unique among donor-advised funds because it was built with you in mind, someone who believes that limited government personal responsibility, and free enterprise are bedrock values worth fighting for. Now, I know you don't give just for the tax breaks, but those tax breaks may let you give more than you otherwise might. That means you can have a greater impact in support of your community, your faith, and your ideas. Don't wait. Set aside those charitable dollars now and do it with a partner that shares your values, Donors Trust. Download your free prospectus at DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet to see how Donors Trust can help you minimize your taxes and, more importantly, maximize the impact of your charitable giving. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet, and our thanks to Donors Trust for sponsoring. All right, guys, want to get you on the record about a trio of cases that the Supreme Court just agreed to take up. Um, these are sure to be barn burners come decision time. At issue here is whether existing federal anti-discrimination laws protect gay or trans employees from being fired on the basis of those statuses. Now, there are actually three separate cases here, two with individuals who claim they were fired for being gay, one for being trans. Now, Richard, I think if I give that description to an educated layperson who's not a lawyer, they maybe scratch their heads and say, well, these classes are either protected in the text of the law or they're not. So why is this something that it falls to the courts to decide? How do you answer that question? The situation with respect to this depends upon the way in which you actually read the le- the statute in 1964 is against its legislative history, where they start talking about the fact that discrimination is not going to be allowed on the basis of sex. It was introduced there by Howard Smith. Some people thought it was a joke. Other people thought it was quite serious. Um, But what he wanted to make sure was that you could not have help-wanted columns female, help-wanted columns male, and that you had to have some sort of parity between the two sexes, later the two genders, on this particular issue. There was not at any point during that entire history 
Any discussion of the modern causes that have come up with respect to sexual orientation, which is not the same thing as sex, or with respect to transgender people, which is, again, not the same thing. So the, the argument essentially is that if you start looking at this statute and they said discrimination based on sex, it means that you can't prefer somebody because he's a man or prefer somebody because he's a woman. Sexual orientation is not sex. It's a different kind of problem. Uh, the social pressures to try and get the norms to cover these cases has been just absolutely powerful. Powerful. And starting with Kitty McKinnon's book um, on sexual harassment, you can start to see how it was that the traditional classifications now get, get to be expanded. There was not the slightest hint in 1964 that sexual harassment was on the agenda as something covered by Title VII, and it got incorporated. Uh, so you're going to see here a very powerful conflict between the so-called living version of Title VII, a sort of super statute, and those those people who are going to be fixated and connected with the earlier state. I am very much in the, you keep the statute as it was. The gender identity cases are, I think, much more dangerous as far as I'm concerned uh, because if somebody decides that, that he is going to identify himself as female, does he, at 14 years of age or 16 years of age, get to use the girls' locker room? Does he get to compete in sports events for women and so forth? And I think, in effect, that uh, the uniform practices of sexual differentiation are absolutely critical and that the political process should handle how you deal with transgendered people. So if you look at the city of Gloucester case, um, which was a huge issue in the Fourth Circuit, uh, it was quite clear that the school understood there was a serious problem when you had a young woman who thought of gender dysphoria, who regarded herself as a young man, was addressed as such, and they said, look, we can't put you in the girls' room because you don't want it and the boys don't want you in the boys' room, so we'll give you separate accommodations. And then it turned out that that accommodation was regarded as insufficient by the court. I have a very strong view on these kinds of cases. They're difficult. They're very hard. Uh, they are better handled by sensitive management. They are not better handled uh, by civil rights suits. I don't think the statute was written that way, and I think it would be ill-advised to make these sorts of extensions. I'm pretty sure that if you try to do this by uh, congressional statute, you would not get it through the Senate. You would certainly have it vetoed by the president. You might not even get it through the House. And I think it's generally an extremely dangerous practice to start giving novel interpretations of established practices and established uh, statutory interpretations in order to create a huge transformation in the substantive law. John, a lot of the anticipatory media coverage of this is emphasizing the absence of Justice Kennedy on the court because he was often seen as an ally on, on issues that related to gay rights. Kennedy is pretty remarkable when you look back on this. Wrote the majority opinions in uh, Romer, which as I recall is about uh, allowing anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people at the state level. In Lawrence, which overturned sodomy laws, in Windsor, which invalidated the Defense of Marriage Act, and in Obergefell, with the gay marriage decision. Uh, now, John, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you probably agree with the policy outcomes in, in most or all of those cases. But how should we regard Kennedy's jurisprudence on them? In, in other words, how would you judge this track record that's now being lionized purely as a matter of constitutional interpretation? Right. I do think that, unfortunately, it would have made a difference if Kennedy were still on the court, but it would have been for the wrong reasons. And, and the reason is this, uh, you know, all the decisions you just mentioned were interpretations of the Constitution, and they were about whether the state could commit invidious discrimination uh, right, with the right to marriage or enforcement of sodomy laws and so on based on sexual orientation. Um, and Kennedy, I think, uh, really was uh, quite an activist. Even though I agreed with the policy outcome, I think on the law, he was you know, really creating a right that wasn't there. And I think really did quite a lot of uh, a creative interpretation of the rational basis. But that's really different from what this is. Actually, it's interesting. I had an interesting argument with my economist colleagues who thought exactly as you did. He said, well, if the court already has found for uh, gay rights in Obergefell and Lawrence and so on, why wouldn't they just do that here? There's a huge difference. This is a statute. It's not about the Constitution. This is not about a right that the Constitution requires. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> right Title VII applies primarily to private employers who are not covered by the Equal Protection Clause or the Due Process Clause. Um, this is about a right that's created and extended by Congress. So everything Richard said is correct because it's a statute. It's not about whether today we would say, oh, there's distinctions between sex and sexual orientation and then you know, these people are changing sexes. 
the question is just what did the Congress in 1964 think when they put in the word sex in the list of grounds on which you can't discriminate? I think it would have been a total shock to the members of Congress back in 1964 that people would believe when they forbid sex discrimination, they were also including sexual orientation. I just I just. I bet there is absolutely no legislative history that would support that. And so the only argument people can make is, as Richard said, judges are trying to creatively, dynamically interpret the statute to update the norms to what people today would want. That is not the job of the courts. And so that's where I think a different – I think this will be a big difference between Kavanaugh and Kennedy. I don't think there's any indication that Kavanaugh uh, is at all sympathetic to these kinds of uh, not just living constitution but living statute. Arguments, And so I think his replacement again would make a big difference in the outcome of this case. Either of you nervous about Roberts here? I'm always nervous about Roberts. <laughs> but actually, I don't see him doing it. No, I'm not nervous. Look, I mean, remember, he had a very stinging dissent in Obergefell. Right. Extremely stinging. Uh, and he was just angry at what he thought. Uh, was an absolute willingness to read into the Constitution something that was not there based upon political preferences. That particular attitude would also carry over with respect to statutes. Um, Look, uh, on some of this stuff, a very strange kind of position. I think that all of Title VII is a huge mistake to the extent that you impose an anti-discrimination norm on any ground with respect to competitive labor markets. And I think it's the same thing is true with the human rights laws in such cases, having to deal with the provision of services like in the Masterpiece Cake Theater. So I don't want to see any of this going. But what's going to happen on the other side is people are going to say, well, we do it for race. We do it for this. We do it for that. Why do we not do it for these other things? And I think, you know, it's very difficult to figure out exactly where these analogies do and do not work. And so there's going to be a strong pressure pushing it. I will add one other thing, which I think cuts against the modern interpretation. When they did add sex in, what they did is they put in qualifications, most notably one called the BFOQ, the bona fide occupational qualification, which only applied to cases of sex. And if you actually read the legislative history, uh, they meant it to cover such thing as you didn't have to uh, play a, have a woman play Hamlet in Hamlet, although you certainly could do so. And that was a, meant to be a pretty broad exception, bona fide being a pretty generous term, which was very much narrowed in all the subsequent interpretations by the courts. But it does point out, at least as far as 1964 was concerned, there was not a lockstep parity between sex and race. I think that issue is going to be largely forgotten in this situation. Having seen these debates take place already, it's very clear that nobody on the aggressive side of this thing is worried about legislative history. They're worried about what they think to be the insuperable moral case in their particular favor. They will get, I think, the four liberals to go along with them, but my I guess is they will not get the five conservatives. Final thing that I want to get us to today, because it's too good to pass up, a ruling out of the Sixth Circuit on a controversy in Saginaw, Michigan, where a lawsuit was filed against the city over the practice of chalking tires. I, I feel so old that I have to explain this. This is where you park in a time-limited spot and the parking enforcement comes by, makes a chalk mark on your tire, and if it's still there by the time they come back, lets them know that you've been there past the allotted time limit and they can give you a ticket. And John, the Sixth Circuit said that that practice is a violation of the Fourth Amendment prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures. Simple question, John. Is that crazy? <laughs> No, it's not crazy. (laughs) I think it's wrong, but it's not crazy uh, because it must take off from Justice Scalia's opinion about the GPS tracking device. You might remember that uh, the court struck down a few years ago uh, the uh, police practice of sticking on a device on a car that would give its GPS location. And Scalia said the reason why was because it was a physical invasion of the car. However, I don't see the chalking as being a physical invasion of the car. It's not like you're you know, attaching someone to the, something to the car. They're just making a mark on the car. And you know what? It's just going to lead to far more intrusive alternatives. So what are the police going to do? Not the police, the parking meter people. Parking? Are we allowed to call them maids anymore, or is that a no-no? In, um, I'm pretty sure know, that's verboten. So. We just lost four sponsors when you even asked the question. <laughs> so, this is an age of sensitivity. Every time I see those guys in those little golf carts, I want to accelerate and hit them. And see how- 
hate these guys. And you know what's going to happen instead? They're going to start taking pictures, right? They'll take a phone. They'll take a picture of your car. And so now they're going to know the location of your car and the time of it because that's going to be geolocated on the data. And they're going to have a picture of your license plate. It's, you know, if you're interested in privacy, you should much rather welcome the chalk mark than what the police are going to do next. And they're going to say, we didn't get any physical invasion of your car, but we're allowed to take a picture of it because it's sitting out in public. You, right, you aggregate all these parking photo pictures into a database, and then they're going to be able to know where your car goes around all the time. That is so, sometimes the ACLU is so stupid. Well, well maybe uh, not sometimes. But maybe all the time. <laughs> Look, let's start with the constitutional text, unreasonable searches and seizures. First of all, there is a real question of whether this is a search. Um, what happens is it's not that when you put this line on this particular thing, you're actually discovering something about the tire. Um, it turns out that what you're doing is you're creating a database for yourself. Uh, it's not giving you any information about anything that's in the car that you cannot get by way of direct observation. But let's suppose that it is a search. Um, is it an unreasonable search? Well, if you start thinking about the nature of the intrusion, it turns out to be perfectly trivial. Uh, you could wipe this thing off. If you try to talk about the justification for it to get scoff laws, it seems to me that it's a pretty powerful justification. If reasonableness is a trade-off between the harms that are inflicted on private parties, apart from catching of the offense and the gains to the government, it seems to me that it's a pretty easy case uh, the other way. Um, in fact, one of the things that I think is extremely important is that as I think of the Constitution, it's not probable cause, or you could just do it at will. Reasonable suspicion is a middle category, and I think it is perfectly sensible that you can do certain things of an external and superficial nature if you have reason to believe that it's going to lead to some particular kind of uh, crime and so forth that you could uncover. And so long as it's minor, then there's just no particular difficulty associated with it. I'm also going to say something else. Generally speaking, we've done this practice in thousands of jurisdictions for many, many years, there is no evidence sign of abuse of any sort, kind, of description. There are no charges of invidious selection of this particular woman who complained. Uh, there's no sense that the system turns out to be inaccurate in its application. It seems to me to be, as John said, less intrusive and more reliable, and that does not add up to the phrase unreasonable. John, there, there's an ancillary issue here that I want to get your take on. One of the things that comes out in this case is that in Saginaw, Michigan, where the suit originated – these tickets were the source of about $200,000 worth of revenue. It was no, no small matter in a municipality that size. And also the plaintiff here got 14 tickets over the course of three years, all written by the same officer who is apparently far and away the most prolific ticket writer in the city. And this taps into an anxiety that you've heard in the last few years on both the left and the right that all these little non-tax revenue sources that local governments have, this complaint's normally about fines, but you can include fees and the like too. They were all sold as ways to reduce the burden on taxpayers, but in reality, they create these perverse incentives for local governments to engage in really petty, intrusive behavior as, as a way to drive revenue. Does that bother you? Oh, I think actually last I heard something like 20 to 30 percent of the Berkeley city revenue stream is just from parking tickets. I think there's a way a lot of cities uh, raise revenues, parking tickets, which I think is bizarre. It's sort of like they're I mean, they're making a lot of money by renting out, I guess, the space where you're allowed to park your car. I think it's God given right to park wherever the hell you feel like. I can't. I, I hate all the parking meters. It's not like you're actually I actually not. I still don't really quite understand like how. How cities are allowed to charge you for parking on the side of a post? It's not like they're actually doing you any service. It's just a tax, right? So why not just tax people directly for it? It is so outrageous. I really, I, I, that's why every time I see these parking meter made trucks, I really want to, I want to see how far I can drop kick one over the goalposts. I can feel your car on the side of the road. Rich, I feel like Richard is about to channel Donald Shoup for me. I'm just going to mention something. I actually wrote an extensive article many years ago about parking on public spaces and you know the rental situations in the various. I wrote a very good law review article on this particular – on parking meters. It turns out to be an immensely complicated situation. Uh, but look, there are congestion fees. You could charge tolls for driving streets and you could certainly charge for parking. Um, it becomes absolutely critical. Merchants, for example, do want parking meters in front 
owner of shops because otherwise six people park there for the whole day and they lose hundreds of customers. And it turns out that it's perfectly sensible to ration very desirable spaces by charging more than you charge others. Uh, you can do this now through Curb and, or uh, Chicago Park and other this kinds is, of this is, city. This is not but Western Europe. This is America. No, it is America. And it turns out we would like it to run more sensibly. And so, these, John, your anarchistic <laughs> impulses don't work on this. I mean, uh, there is obviously – some kind of abuses that you could make with respect to the way in which you administer these systems. Uh, I actually am much more offended at the rates that happen sometimes. Um, so I will give you the one that bothers me and it had nothing to do with this because they took a picture of it. I was parking on a street, 53rd Street in Chicago, and the curb was essentially about one inch above the street. And my tire was about two inches over the curb. And I went out for lunch. When I came back, there was a $60 fine that I had for parking on the curb. Which I regarded as just insane. Yeah, but it's an outrage. But just the, but, privilege, but the privilege of having your car on the side. No, no, no. I mean, I, I do think you could charge too much or too little for these things. But I think it is perfectly appropriate that when you have a valuable resource, you do not have to give it away for free. John is essentially a socialist. He wants everybody to get <laughs> up at no particular point. And then wonders why it is government. Oh, you're going to have huge stuff. Uh, you're going to have huge overconsumption. Yeah, Here's another you idea, John. You can park anywhere you want. So what you do is you yeah, decide. As long as I can, as long as yeah, I can right on the entrance of the Washington Bridge and block everybody from going here and there. No, there are rules. Don't give him ideas, Richard. I mean, John's not going to be happy until he's double parked a Hummer somewhere. You know, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is a point on which it is there. My favorite illustration wait, on wait, the wait. Park. I've got a hypo for you, Richard. So are you in favor of these congestion pricing things where the city, like London, and I think San Francisco yes. is about to do this. They put, up car, they put up traffic cameras all over the city, and then they start charging you based on scanning your license plate uh, at the times you're driving, whether you're adding more congestion in the city <laughs> or not. Very good idea. But this is just one step away from socialism. No, it's not. This is essentially it's accurate market pricing. This so, Richard, would, you, would, your, would your libertarian impulses there lead you to want that to be a uh, – a revenue neutral thing. So you you set up that pricing mechanism, but then you drop the gas tax or something. Well, I, actually, this is much neutral. They're all the the no, 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 no. The, the gas tax is a proxy for anything that's wrong. A congestion tax is much more reliable. And in fact, we probably need a tax which has a bunch of stuff. A three part tax. One is for congestion. One is for weight because the damage it causes to the highway, whether it's heavy traffic or not. And one is pollution. And you would like to be able to monitor cars and to charge them for all, all three things, uh, which will in effect induce much more efficient behavior. Uh, what is going on. The danger in all of these systems is that you set the prices too high or too low. So you have to be extremely careful. But I do think with respect to congestion, um, what you can do is you can start to see whether or not you've done it. So if it's a $100 an hour tax to drive in rush hour in New York City and nobody's on the road at 4 o'clock in the afternoon – you know the tax is too high. So I do think that there are certain kinds of feedback mechanisms. But yes, pricing is extremely important. Giving resources away for zero is like Bernie Sanders with respect to college students. I'm really glad that we finally got in some fan service for the people who tune in for transportation policy. Uh, final question, gentlemen. The great E.J. Hill, Ricochet's resident Photoshop wizard and our pinch-hitting producer tonight – reminds me that we skipped over our annual opening day World Series predictions this year. I think this is mainly an excuse to give him an obvious Photoshop. So, EJ, please put me in an Angels uniform this year. I seem to always get the Indians, which is not only not my team, but also I feel like me and a Chief Wahoo hat's going to tank a confirmation hearing in 20 years. Also, um, actually, that's probably overdetermined. Sensibilities. You want to be in a Native American's uniform. <laughs> So anyway, here we are. We, I've spotted you guys now a few weeks into the season. So, uh, John, I'll start with you. Your World you know Series predictions, answer, please. But yeah, it's, but it's you got to get past this, man. This is their year. I think even though I hate the idea of, high, of adding Bryce Harper at that price, I think Whoa. the Phillies are going to do really well this year. So Eastern Division, it's going to be the Phillies. Um, the Western – in the National – I don't care about the other divisions other than the Western Division. I think it is going to be the Dodgers again. I, I, I you just picked two National League teams, John. Yeah, you're, we're just, I'm just picking the, the National League teams. Now, the American League <laughs> – why, why are you guys unable to do this? Every year there's a confusion oh, I'm still as to who plays in the, in the World there Series. There used to be the Eastern and the Western divisions. Oh, and God. The World Series. And then the American League – 
You know, I really don't give a rat's ass about the American. <laughs> Watch your language, young man. <laughs> but I, I, it's more like it's with the American League. It's always the teams I want to lose. So I want the Yankees and the Red Sox to lose. So I'm going to go. I don't really care about that. I'm going to go with the A's. That's well, my pick. The A's. I think you might have made this pick good. four times before. So good. Now that we've now that we've gone <laughs> through all loyal. six divisions, and John has torpedoed his part. Richard, feel free to pick the Boston Braves at this point. The, uh, the Boston Braves. Yes, I actually think they're a very fine team. Do you know that Casey Stengel managed them between 1936 and 1943? I did not know those specifics. And that part of the time they were called the Boston Bees. I just want you to understand that's a nostalgia situation. But in terms of the current stuff. Um, I think the Yankees are too injured to do anything. The Red Sox seem to have stumbled out of the gate. Um, my guess it's is probably Richard. Uh, no, but I think uh, it's a prognosis of things to go wrong. So I'm going to guess Houston in the American League. I think essentially in the National League, the Dodgers have been there before. I think they have what is this year probably the best player in the National League, Cody Ballinger. What's he? I, I looked at his figures when I saw the game today. He's batting 430 or something like that. He has a slugging percentage of about it's 900. It's April, nothing. But, but, uh, this is late April. Um, I think that the Dodgers are essentially, at this point, the class operation, and they're probably going to win it. Now, I have to tell you, the 1957 Brooklyn Dodgers. Here we go. Uh, oh, I mean, I still remember the days the Dodgers left Brooklyn. Right? I mean, yes. And uh, somebody asked me about this, and I told them about the great catch that Billy Martin made in the 1952 World Series. And I think it was the seventh inning off a Jackie Robinson pop-up that would have landed right by the mound when there were two out, everybody running on base. Um, So I think, in fact, what we should really do is to ask the question, who do you think is going to win the 1952 World Series? And I I answer the Yankees. I just put you into a fugue state every time I answer this this question. (laughs) Well, I mean – I I don't follow baseball anymore. The reason I don't follow baseball is I I don't live live in one city all the time, which makes it very hard. You just went to a baseball game today. Yeah, and also, Richard, you you split your time between three cities with a combined six teams. Maybe that's the problem. And you can't watch it. But in order to root for a team, you have to have constant affinity. And when you kept on jerking around one place to another, you never do this. And it also turns out I just have too many other things that I have to do. So I am basically making a confident prediction. Yes, I do that. And chess games to play. I'm making a confident prediction based on no information. What makes me worried is that I share one of your choices. <laughs> Ooh, well, <laughs> yeah, because I which I one had- do you share? Well, I actually came perilously close to picking Houston in the in the Dodgers, but as a Southern Californian, I just feel like the the Dodgers thing is a curse. So I'm not going to. I yeah, picked, we all picked the Dodgers. I picked Houston and Milwaukee. They, they, well, Milwaukee's a good team. Yeah, that, that's very good. I've forgotten about them. You know, it turns out you know Milwaukee's this tiny little city north of Chicago, and they're eating our lunch in both basketball on the one hand and in baseball on the other. And it's a lovely place. Shout out to Milwaukee. Milwaukee's a lovely place. Wisconsin. Uh, I've never, never been there. How have never you never been to never Wisconsin, been to... John? Why? What's there? It's beautiful. <laughs> it is a gateway to paradise. Well, it's a very we nice a, state. We got our next live launch. We launch port. Yes, and we do that. Um, the Upper Midwest is a place that is very worthwhile visiting. But I think our, basically our time is just about over. I've got to get myself to sleep, or I actually have to write something. Wow, Richard's Rome taking over the hosting job. Yeah, better I better watch out. I don't know what happened there. He just pulled yeah, the plug. All right. That being said, uh, that is our show, <laughs> gentlemen. <laughs> uh, thank you, as always. Thanks to EJ Hill for sitting in behind the boards. Our regular producer, Scott Emmergut in absentia. Our sponsors at Donors Trust, and of course, thanks to our great listeners as well as the ones who just fell asleep listening to Glop. Remember to help us out by rating the show at iTunes. We'll see you soon. Until then, the faculty lounge is officially closed. You can go to bed now, Richard.
Ricochet. Join the conversation.